don't worry about it. It's not my problem. All they got to do is pay me the rent. And then I got to set up where they pay the rent to an account. The bank takes the mortgage out of that same account. And then whatever's left is clearly mine. I don't pay any bills, not taxes, not insurance, not nothing. So look for a seven cap, let's see, $800,000. If you spread that out and use 20, 25% down, you could probably do up to four deals. You need to go out and look for like four $1 million deals or two $2 million deals. If you find a $1 million deal and you put $200,000 down on it, and you finance the other 800000 on the million, mil- the million, then the 800000 is going to cost you roughly about twenty grand a month, uh, two, two grand a month. So if you got, you know, uh, two grand a month to pay the bank, and if you get yourself a seven cap, that's seventy grand a year on that million dollar property, out of the seventy, you give the bank their twenty five or whatever it is. And you're left with 45 on a $200,000 investment. So you could probably get that 10 grand a month with only 400 that grand out of the 800. All right? We you got to go. Point. All right, already. I'm telling the guy what to do with his goddamn 800 grand so you can get $10,000 a month. You know, you need to find deals and then finance them. The thing about triple net is the beauty of it is. You finance it. You're borrowing money at three and four percent, but you're collecting six or seven. So that spread is yours, which increases your return on your investment. Okay? If you just pay cash a million dollars, you're only gonna get seventy grand a year. Right? But you have to put up a million dollars for it. If you only put two hundred thousand up and you get 45, you're not in better shape because you can do more deals. All right, next. And go with stuff that's necessity. Walgreens, grocery stores, auto parts stores, you know, things like that. All right, good luck. Take care. What's up? We got a caller. We got a caller. We got a caller. Good evening, Ben. This is Leo calling from your favorite place on earth, New York City. New York City! <laughs> Isn't there, was, was there a commercial where the guy used to go, where's this sauce from? New York City? All right, so what's New up? York. What part of New York City? Oh, Queens. Queens. Queens oh, yeah? Yep. Okay. So what can we do for right you? Hey, you in Astoria? No, by Regal Park. Regal Park. Like Left Rack City. Left Rack City. People don't know, but Left Rack... There's like two big builders. You have all these apartments built by a guy named Lefrak. Trump built a shitload of apartments. And then there's some other big shots. But anyway, so what can we do for you? Happens to be that um, a family member of mine has three multifamily homes that they haven't paid the mortgage in about, let's say, eight years. So now she's, you know, she's a little bit of an older age. She's about, I don't know, 65, getting towards like 70, so like more like 68. And she's thinking, well, you know, I haven't paid the, the, the my my houses in a couple of years, but I wanted to leave something for the family. Um, she wants to know if she can 
how she gets back on track in terms of uh, paying off the mortgage. But now imagine eight years. What, what, what is your experience in that, Ben? Did you say eight years? She couldn't have gone without paying a mortgage in eight years. No bank's going to go for that. Eight years has been. Eight no years has it been a friggin' mortgage on three different properties? On three different properties. And is it all the same bank? Uh, two are the same bank. And what are the banks doing? Nothing? They haven't told her nothing? They haven't foreclosed on her? Nothing? Mm, I think they're going through a foreclosure. Something like that now. But she got a she got something recently in the mail saying that um, if you get if if we do a payment mortgage payment by the first of next month, then we could get back on on the on the payment or get it back up to date on everything. Listen, it sounds like you know you or somebody needs to step in right away, right away. And get a hold of that settlement agreement letter. You need to cut a deal if they ever foreclosed on it. Or five dollars a day? That's Not like three. Day. Come on, it's like three something. Yeah, yeah. So you know, just yeah. I I always give the invitation because I feel like um, um, the community and it's hu- literally hundreds of people. Yeah. Hundreds of people on the call every single day. So make sure you uh, go to themorningmeetup.com. We also got a Patreon if you want to show love to your favorite podcast. Uh, just yeah. go to patreon.com forward slash David Never Sleeps, Javon. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Forward slash David Never Sleeps. Make sure you go check that out. Um, and you can get like unreleased stuff. And hold on, Jeremy. I'm almost done. Okay. I, I'm doing commercials. You got to pay the bills. I love it. Oh, dang. I don't got my my phone number. I don't know it. You know it? You know my number? Hold on. Y'all can text me. I do pick up this phone, too. I, I actually text. So I got it. 404-737-4935. Make sure you text me. Yeah, make sure you text me. All right, cool. And uh, we're right back. Jeremy. Yeah. Thank you, man. Absolutely. No doubt. Thank you. Yo, real quick, and I know you got to go. We're going to close this out. But can I get like a five-minute conversation for my Patreon members. Okay. So Patreon is like people, it's like unreleased stuff. So everybody gets this, but you got like five, 10 minutes. Okay. Real quick. Okay. We'll make it quick. Okay. Yeah. Let's close it out. All right. So Jeremy, let everybody know how to find you, man. Again, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Not only just the podcast, but your uh, mentorship to mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. your, mm-hmm. um, your tutelage, um, just, just, just being who you are. There's nothing that you have that. Yeah, in the federal prison, they need haircuts. They pay barbers to come inside the federal. No way. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I had a few of those back in 2017. You got a contract from the the government yeah. that says, "Yo, I want you to." I need people to cut hair in prison. So I need licensed barbers to cut hair in the federal prison bureau system. Yes. I had like three of those. And you go find a barber and you say, hey, barber. My man, I got work for you, consistent work at the Detroit prison system. Can you go there at least twice a week? Tell me how much you're going to charge me. I get their quotes from, uh, from them, right? 
I put my money on top, send it to the federal government, and either they say yay or nay. Okay. Do you still do that? Yeah. I'm saying, do you have a contract with the... Oh, no, no, no. no. Yeah, it's been... Give me some numbers. Give me some numbers. What they pay you and what you paid the barber. All right, so let's say the barber says, I need... Well, the contract was this. They have to do at least 200 heads, mm-hmm. right? They have to cut 200 heads. Okay, cool. The barber seems like a lot of pressure, though, because if you mess up somebody's line, it's crazy. <laughs> I, don't know what it, I don't know what it, I don't know. <laughs> I ain't got nothing to lose, bro. You but you got peep game, too, though. Most, I, and I ain't going to group a ball, right? But most barbers, they from the street, like, yeah, so they, they come. That's a fact. Yeah, that's they a come. Fact. So, so they said, the contract said, I need 200 haircuts. I need you to cut 200 heads. Yeah. Okay. He said $5,000. 200 heads, $5,000. That's what, that's that's what the what, barber charged you. That's what he wanted to charge me. Okay, cool. What I'm going to do, though, is Hold I'm going to take that. that num- those numbers don't sound right. 200 heads, 5000 I wonder. Hold I don't on, know what he's equating. He's probably equating in there. Five he got to go into the system. How much is it per head? $25. Oh, so it's a, it's a cut. Go. Regular stuff, right? Oh, that's, that ain't bad. Now, what God, I did... Lee, I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> to, for a barber to make $5,000, they have to it. cut 200 heads. But that's why they charge... What do they charge right now? $40, 40 a haircut? Yeah, I don't even yeah, know. they a little more now. I don't God, care. Lee. Yeah, I cut my own hair, man. Right. I don't got time for it. <laughs> for sure. I've been in the mirror like this. Right, right. myself up. So what I do is, okay, my man wants 5000 let me go see what another barber is going to charge me for the same 200 heads at the same prison system. Now, let's say another barber came to me and said he wants $7,000. Okay, cool. No problem. Obviously, I'm going to go with the $5,000 because it's the lower quote. But it's a guy out there that want to charge me $7,000 for the same thing. I'm going to just put my two on top of it and send a um, proposal to the government for $7,000. He make his five, I make my two. Oh, so that's why you're getting the second quote to see, like, what is what, the normal rate? There you go, because I don't, I don't cut hair, so I don't know if it's high, low, if he gouging me or not. I don't know that. So I have to go get another quote so I can price compare. We do it all the time. I got to get uh, a roof done on my house, right? I'm not going to go with the first person I call. All right. I'm going to probably call like five people. For sure. It's the same system. It's the same mindset. I want to call multiple people to see, because the purpose of it is, right, how much money can I put on top of this thing? But you can't know if you just get one quote. You know what I was thinking? I thought in, in government contracting, they say I have a certain amount of money to do this particular Everybody job. thinks that. Everybody thinks that. They're, my students, they'll come to me and say, well, how do I know what they're going to pay? They don't know because we're bidding. Because we're bidding on it. If they say we want $200,000 for this contract, everybody would bid what? $200,000. <laughs> right. So it's no, it, it'd be, it would so be no purpose. So the government's trying to save their money too. Like, they yo, let me, let, they, so, so they're doing exactly what you did. Like, yeah, let me go so I'm taking their system and I'm just doing it the opposite way so I can co- sit, submit a competitive quote. The same thing. Very lit. <laughs> okay, so back, back. Okay, we're going to just, I, I want to like let everybody know. How long you been doing this? 2008. 
2008. Yes, sir. Since 2008, what has been your one biggest contract? Uh, 3.2. 3.2 million. Yeah. One contract. One. For how long? It was 3.2 over four years. So the government paid $3.2 million to you over four years. Yeah. That was for elevators. What do you mean? To do maintenance on elevators, 132 elevators. But you don't know nothing about elevators or nothing about maintenance. I never never even seen them elevators or seen the people working on them elevators. Never seen them. What state was it in? California. 3.2 million (laughs) to to install and maintenance elevators in California over a four-year period. How much did it cost you? to find and source these people? And how long did it take? Oh, man, that's a phenomenal question. So, number one, it cost me nothing to go to Google, right, and find companies that want to do this work. That's the first thing. So, that's zero. So, it probably took me, like, maybe, like, two weeks because each contract has a, a date that it needs to be due, right? So, let's say I find it on May 1st. It's due May 30th. So right. I got to turn it in May thir- before May 30th. Mm-hmm. So, but I want to gather all my information within a two-week time period so now I can do what? Go through my numbers and make sure I'm getting a decent amount too. Obviously, I'm not trying to get the same amount they're getting, mm-hmm. but I want a nice amount too because if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't have to work. For sure. You feel me? For so sure. I got to make sure I add my money in there too. So I, I give myself a two-week time period. And how much did you pay out? On the three point two, on the three point two, I paid out uh, two two four nine nine. So about two point five. Yeah, but so I you just made seven hundred thousand dollars as a middleman, and I ain't do nothing. And I still, I, I still got their contact information today. They still call me. Obviously, they want some more work. One contract. That was just one. Yeah, but I got forty of them. That's what a lot of people don't understand. You got to watch, rinse, repeat this thing. What yeah. is going on right you gotta, now? <laughs> All right. You got to okay. watch, rinse, repeat it, man. The thing is this. There's not a lot of companies that know how to obtain federal government contracts. That's the first thing. So the federal government continues to call the same companies over and over again, even though they know you don't have a specialty. What they do know is, you can find a subcontractor that's going to do the job of the scope of work and get it done. That's what they know. Golly. Mm-hmm. How many contracts do you have right now? 40. You have 40 contracts. Yeah. Various numbers, right? They're not all yeah, 3.2. No. But they're not all only 3.2, bro. Right, right. <laughs> you feel me? Like, so nowadays, I've tapped into the real estate world and federal government contract. That's a different space. That's a whole different beast. But 30 of my contracts are four years and better. So that's that residual, you know, month after month after month. And that, just, uh, just that particular isolated situation of 3.2 is spread out over four years. It's over four, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So, and how do they pay it out? Every month, every 30 days. So they take 3.2 million divided by the X months, amount of months. Yeah, whatever the months And are. then they just yeah, I, I invoice, I invoice. So I see how much money I got to charge them. Every month, I hit that invoice button, boom, maybe 15 days later in the same month, 
that money come through. So you send out 40 invoices every month. Yeah. Well, now, not me, but. Right, or not yeah, you, yeah. yeah. But the team, yeah. That's lit. All right, cool. <laughs> okay, so let's let's take them back. Let's take them back. Like, who is Jay White? Like, how did you get started? Man, I was working at the gas station. I was In 2008, I was working at the gas station. BP, my homeboy rolled Go up on me. I was serving gas. The boy behind the glass? Yeah, that was me. So you pulled up on me. So everybody got a little sales, right? Right. If you're my people, I'm going to give you some free gas. You give me $20, I'm going to give you $10 worth of free gas, right? What year is this? It's 2008. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can just pull up to the tank. It ain't like now, right? You got to pay before you play. Right. Back then, you could just go to the pump and get right, it in. Right, yeah, right. So. Hold on, we're, we're in Maryland? No, no, no. I'm from uh, Virginia. Virginia. From Norfolk, yeah. Did they pump the gas for you in Virginia? No. Because they did in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Jersey, yeah. they'll pump the gas for you. Well, that's up north, down south. Virginia ain't necessary. Virginia is some, somewhat well, considered north. Well, we in Georgia, but we Virginia, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's... it's Virginia is <laughs> not necessarily considered south. It's is the it? south, baby. Yeah, it's like borderline. Because D- I'm saying, but DMV is uh, Delaware. Okay, Maryland, okay. So Virginia. I'm below the DMV. So north, you got Northern Virginia, and then yep. you got Tidewater. I'm from Tidewater. Okay, so we right, consider. Cool. Right, like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know it in Virginia. Okay. All right, so you the dude behind the class. Like, yo, let me get the chapstick. You're like, all right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Hold on. All right, you want this one or you want that one? That's me. What switch of switch you want? Or you want the great one? All right, great. <laughs> yeah, that was me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So how did you? So he rolled up on me. Who? My homeboy. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm going to do federal government contract. I'm going to get a truck. I said, what's federal con? What is that? I had no clue. He said, hit me when you get off work. I said, but I got you. Next day, my boy went to jail, actually. Went to prison. The guy. Yeah, he went to prison. The next day, I hit him up when I got off, nothing. I hit him up the next day. His mama told me he got locked up. I'm so cool. He put the bug in my ear because he said it with such enthusiasm. I was like, yo, what is that? Like, he was hyped. He's like, I'm going to get a truck. I'm going to get a federal contract. Ooh, I'm about to do this. I'm like, man, okay, cool. So he put the bug in my ear. I did my, my YouTube research back then. So I tried to piece everything together. It took me three years to win my first contract, though. So I started in 2008. I didn't win one until 2011. Dang. Yeah, I was struggling. I hate to, number one, I hate to read. I told you I got a PhD. Right. Public high school diploma. Right, right. So I don't got it all there in terms of the education. Like, okay, I, I, step one, step two, step. I ain't. I was just trying to. That go actually makes forward. me feel real comfortable because I hate research. And when I, I hate it I, because I've I've heard of the industry and all I see is paperwork, and I'm like, yeah. this is not for me. Yeah, yeah. Period. So I'm just the guy, you know, jump out the window, build my parachute on the way down, and I'm taking all kind of lumps. Like, I can't figure it out. I'm getting frustrated. Three years. Three years. No contracts. None. Zero. But peep game, when I went at first one, it was over. Because I started to document what I was doing. Because I was getting close. All the ones that I was losing, I noticed I was getting a little better at certain pieces. Okay. Well, now my pricing is better. Right? Because at first, I might charge the government $20,000 to clean toilets. Like, I'm way off. I'm way off. But I didn't compare prices. I wasn't doing That's super high. 
to clean mm. toilets, maybe two. Like I was doing stuff like two toilet contract, twenty thousand. I want twenty thousand. Gotcha. I'm going. I'm going too hard. The federal government. I'm thinking of it as like a blank check. Mm-hmm. Like I was doing it wrong. That's how I think of yeah, it. Yeah, I was yeah, right. Yeah, I was yeah. doing it wrong. So boom, my pricing got better. Then my timing got better. Remember, they all got due dates. So I was submitting them after the due date. Mm. I didn't have no computer for real. Like I was all jacked up. I was just working with what I had. So my pricing, my timing got better, but more importantly, my communication got better. Because every contract has a contract specialist. Most people don't even communicate with them people. I communicated with them because I didn't know nothing. Okay, what's the definition of this word? I will call them. Okay, why do I need to sign this document? I will call them. So I started to notice the more and more I called, the more information they was, they was actually teaching me how to do it as I'm going through it, right? They ain't even know. So I started to document the things that I was doing and saying and the responses I was getting back. And then I won my first one. The first one I won, it was for 125 bucks to me. But you need help to give birth to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why people get coaches. I've got a mentor in every single company we own. I have a mentor. Mm-hmm. And that's where people go wrong. I have so much purpose. In, but, but I just met with CJ yesterday for two hours. I said at his feet, I'm older than CJ, bro. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But I said at his feet because I'm like, yo, bro, give me the game. Like, help me understand. I want to learn from you. I pay Alex Burton 10 grand for his dispatching. I mean, his trucking course. Mm-hmm. You feel me? So I, people need to invest in themselves wherever they are. If you're trying to have the best marriage, then get some marriage books. Get some marriage coaches. You know what I'm saying? Like, Marriage Inc. At Marriage Inc. That's my me and Tracy's marriage coaches. Like, I would be divorced. I would not have a wife today if it wasn't for them. Like, if you want to win in finances, then you got to get with somebody in that financial space. Like, you got to be willing to get with a midwife or or or, or, or um, what do you call it, the OBGYN, somebody to help you give birth to whatever that thing is. So for the people that feel stuck, you got to get with someone that can unstuck you. You know what I'm saying? And that's the problem. But a lot of people feel like they want to do it on their own or they prideful or they don't want to, don't want to make that investment and they wonder why nothing doesn't change. Well, you got to make a decision, right? And I believe everybody's, everybody can go to that next level if their belief system is intact. But they got to believe. I was one way in life, and I was there forever because of my specific belief system. But when I changed my brain, I changed my life. It all starts with your brain. What you think is what you say. What you say is what you do. What you do on a regular basis becomes a habit. Your habits create your character, and your character determines your destiny. But it all starts right here inside your brain. I'm going to give it to him again. Can I do it again? What you think is what you say. What you say is what you do. What you do on a regular basis becomes a habit. Be cautious. Yo, um, but this was this was super valuable, bro. Yeah, I'm glad. This I'm is glad. super valuable. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, all right, so we got I got two things. And you and hit I, me I off the phone some... too, because whatever I can I can do to help you, I, you just hit my phone, bro. Yeah, because yeah. I need that. I'm having seventy four hundred. I like that. Where else keep going to an auditorium for twenty minutes, an hour? Like, where can you go? and speak without having to stretch, without having to be uh, number one in the country. Or I was shooting. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Just even at, like an attorney, you got to do all this research, you got to do all this writing, you got to, and it's a lot. 
I can't think of any other profession. Let's just take out the fact that you're changed, saving lives. Yeah. Let's just, I want to tell you about that one kid with the weed in school, but I don't know if we have time for it. But let's just take out the idea of— It's up to you. Okay, so I let me share time. this story. But don't forget to come back to this, though. Uh, Are you going to forget? Well, that's what okay, I do. All right, man. professional. So let me just—this is one—this, like, the bag is good. Matter of fact, let me stop playing. The bag is great. Like, the bag is phenomenal. <laughs> it's life-changing, right? And that allows us to be able to feed the kids in South Africa. We put 40 kids in college. Like, it allows us to be a blessing to more people. But, man, it's these type of stories right here I could talk about all day. I went to one school, and I was either in Memphis, either in Memphis or on the south side of Chicago. I can't remember what city, but I'll go in. I do my thing, struggling. It's heavy drugs in the school. Folks getting stabbed. Like, it's one of them type of schools. I pour my heart out, bro. I'm sweating. I speak for an hour. They walk out of the gym. I probably spend another 45 minutes high-fiving, dapping up the kids, you know what I'm saying, praying with them on the slide. Like, whatever they need, I'm just, I bail myself. For you guys got, like, into a relationship relationship, or was it the relationship first, and then you guys teamed up together? So it was the relationship first, and, um, you know, part of what brings us together um, are our commonalities. So we both have an interest and a background in Asia, and that's the region that we were working. So we were in different offices, but the same region. And so we both had, um, so I was, uh, I lived in Japan from the ages of two to six, and I spoke Japanese when we lived there, and then we moved back to the States after that. So I had this, you know, my like, my like pivotal, my growing years, were in Japan. So I had this, really? yeah, so I had this really strong What were you doing connection. in Japan? My parents, my pa my dad's Venezuelan. Okay. So my mom met my dad in Fort Lauderdale, moved with him to Venezuela. I was born there and they'd converted to Buddhism, a Buddhism that the sect is, um, it's the Nichiren uh, Shoshu Buddhism in, in, from Japan. So they had friends who had already gone to, like, explore this Buddhism more in Japan. And my parents were trying to figure out how to get there. My dad found a school that did um, had a master's in architectural photography. So he enrolled in the school. He, like, learned Japanese, enrolled in architectural photography school, and they just took us. Well, I was just me at the time. So, yeah, my, my mom, I'm two, and my mom goes halfway across the world, and they, they like adventure. That's my super parents. cool. Yeah. And you learned <laughs> English and Japanese. I mean, you were obviously old enough yes. to already know English, but you learned Japanese at a very young age. Yeah, so Japanese, Spanish, and English were my first three languages, which was interesting when I moved back because I moved to St. Petersburg, and um, I my second grade teacher... <laughs> tried to hold me and my first grade my first grade teacher tried to hold me back because she said that knowing so many languages made me slow <laughs> which you know that's it was 1986 that's okay um but my mom pushed back and I ended up in gifted class instead <laughs> so um each their own exactly <laughs> but ever since then i was you know when we got to the agency you know i i want i had spanish i was like i can pick japanese right back up i had enough of it and that was my interest and then andy has chinese 
and his um, he has a degree in uh, East Asian studies. And so we had this common interest in that region and in working the targets in that region. So it was natural for us to eventually end up working the same targets. I don't think we were ever at the same time in the same office, but that doesn't mean that we weren't working the same targets, if that makes sense. Like, um, for example, they'll have a regional office that will do Asia, but then they'll have another office that does a subject matter like counterproliferation, mm-hmm. right? So you can be have two people, one in a regional office, one in counterproliferation, and then they overlap because counterproliferation happens everywhere in the world. So that's how it ended up happening. And where are you guys at at this point? Like, where is the CIA headquarters? Like, that you guys, where's the building that you guys are working at? So we were in Langley at the main headquarters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we were there for quite some time before, you know, doing TDYs and things like that. So. And how long was it before you guys actually went out into the field and went to Asia together? So we... And where did you guys go to China? Uh, we... I, I don't you can't think, say? Yeah, we can't say the exact location. Oh, Asia. Okay. <laughs> Asia, okay. Um, but we did a number of TDYs separately. Um, so we had started traveling for the agency almost as soon as we joined. Oh, okay. Right. Like him going, you know, I would go one country, he would go another country at different times as the office, as the mission dictated. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, eventually I, I knew that I wanted to be assigned overseas, um, for a longer period of time. So I started, you know, just putting a little bug in my manager's ear, like I will go literally anywhere, um, I was like, Ulaanbaatar, I don't care. Like, just send me overseas. Um, I wanted the excitement of being in the field because it's the work is different, right? Like, headquarters work is slower. Field work, like, you are on the ground real time. Like, stuff happens, you know? Like, um, where we were, there was a like a small terrorist attack while we were assigned there, you know, and I'm like, it's action. Like stuff is happening real time. Like I'm working with the foreign service there. Um, you know, it's just incredible. So we, I think we were together. I think we were together three years, um, before we were sent out for a long assignment. And that was, it was amazing. What is it about about Asia and those cultures that excites you or interests you? So I think a lot of it has to do with my childhood. Just the fact that I, because my first memories are of Japan mm-hmm. and because my parents are Buddhist. So even when we came back, that culture continued. Um it's just comfortable for me. I like, so I, I definitely feel American. I am definitely Americanized, but I also have this very strong, like I understand the, the culture of p- 
putting your community before yourself, which is very Asian, right? Like Americans mm. are very independent. Um, you usually put yourself before others. But in Asia, like when, like when coronavirus started. Guys, and what's up, Aaron? Keep doing your thing, dude. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. What do you do? I will. What do you do? Closing his first deal in two weeks. Congratulations. I hope you make money on it. Good deal. Good deal. You should be ringing the bell. Whenever somebody closes a deal, we should have the bell to ring or get me to rub a chicken. Chucky, where's your chicken? All right. What else you got? Anything else? Anybody else? Heath Sims. Thanks for the $5. Ben, you ever heard of salad? Salad? Yeah, I know all about salad. It comes right before you. you get a meal. Salad is what you enjoy on your way to the big steak, baby. I love salad, but not too much. You know, it's just to get you started, get your stomach going, because something good's getting ready to come. So you just give it that little teaser with the salad. All right? What else? Softla Ben, 10. Thanks for the $5. What do you know about collecting rents and putting in a sweep account and making interest off of it? The OG property manager was telling me about this. All right. A sweep account is, it's really in banking. It has to do with banking. You put the money in account, the bank sweeps it out. Some banker comes with a broom and a dustpan, sweeps up your money. And he goes, puts it somewhere else where he claims he's making more money because he's invested in something that's paying more money. And then he gives you a piece of that action. I believe that's the way it works. They sweep the money out. They put it in a can somewhere where it's making more money with the other money that the bank has. And then they split the profit with you. So you get a little more interest than you would just sitting in their account doing nothing. That's my opinion. Verify it with a banker, but it's very common on any kind of operating accounts to have a sweep account come in and sweep up. That's what the goddamn banks do. They like to clean up. Clean up your money. What else you got? Anything? IGH Properties. Thanks again for the ninety-nine ninety-nine. Ben, ninety nine, ninety nine. Ben, I, I outspent the doctor. Real estate investors make more money than doctors, anyways. I'm only running for Section Eight now, so if tenants don't pay, I'm still making money, baby. Well, you're a smart guy. You're doing exactly what I did. I mean, you know, that's the benefit. If you rent to Section Eight and you you work with agencies and help low-income people and, and play with the program, then it pays off because you got security. You got the government backing you up, you know, guaranteeing you they, they're going to uh, pay you that money. So I'm glad. I'm happy for you. I wish I was in your shoes because I'm not in those shoes. Shagadam, thanks for the $5. Hey, Ben, thanks for... For your insights, when do you think the real estate market will crash and when will be a good time to buy? You know, right now we're in uncharted waters. You know, everybody's holding on, but I'm telling you now, and everybody's got a prediction. 
And, and half the time, people predict the right thing. Why? Because you're either right or you're wrong. You got a 50% chance. It's like going, it's like when my wife goes to the roulette table. You know, she either plays the black or the red. Why? Because she knows she's got a 50-50 chance of winning. You know, so, um, you know, I'm predicting we don't know what the hell's going on now. The government's really pumped up the economy to keep it going, but I think it's inevitable. The banks aren't getting the money they need on their mortgages. Landlords aren't collecting rents right now. And, and you can't even blame the companies not paying them because they're not making no money. The movie theaters are suffering. The restaurants are suffering. The hotels are empty. You know, gyms are empty. And then, you know, they suffer. The landlord suffers. Everybody's suffering. Uh, I think that there's plenty of people, I'm one of them, ready to cash out. So, like I said... I'm putting properties on the market right now for mega millions less than I thought they were worth and what I would have took before this shit started. So now's a great time to go out and look for bargains, okay? It's always a good time to look for bargains, but now there's a lot of scared people out there. They just don't want to tell nobody they're scared. But I would be out there lowballing stuff because, like I said, you know, you put some money in front of somebody, these days, they're going to think twice. The stock market's going up. The stock market's going down. It's like a brand new boat. I had a wax and everything. Everything's working. The air conditioning's working. The generator's working. It'll cruise at 40 miles an hour. It's got two sleeping compartments. It's got a refrigerator. It's got a microwave. You can take a shower and use the bathroom in it. What the hell else do you want? All under 27, 8 feet. Made by formula. Come on, 30 grand, come on down to Clearwater, and let's make a deal. What else you got? Andres Estronza, thanks for the $5. I submitted an Ask Ben question. Looking for a tenant help on force major, I mean, major. Force majeure? Major claim. Force majeure. Is that, somebody looked that up. Is that some friggin' French word they came up with? Fuck you, force majeure. Force majeure, from my understanding, means that it was, uh, you know, the government or somebody major came in, like a war, a government or something, shut you down. I'm trying to fight that, honestly, with my tenants, saying, listen, you know, it ain't force majeure. A virus doesn't classify for that. And let's make a deal, okay? I'm making deals, all right? So it's best to make a deal. If the tenant's trying to pull that, say, listen, it's, they ain't got no legal. My lawyers say they got no legal way to stand on it. If that was the case, there'd be a million lawsuits, billions of lawsuits. It's not fair to say that. It's best to we all buckle down together. Let's make a deal. What's fair to everybody? How much can you afford to pay? Let's put it on the back end. I've even given away some rent to some big shot clients. They squeezed me, you know, where I had to abate some rent. You know, it depends. Downtown and then white folks Minneapolis. No, nigga, so didn't nobody love George Floyd. Y'all don't play like that nigga. That nigga wasn't shit. He couldn't get borrowed $20. He was a nigga probably borrowed $20 and a whoop you if you asked him for the money back. Because he wasn't them big old nigga. Pill and tank nigga. Stack five. 
If you love the nigga so much, he shouldn't have been downtown trying to pass that $20 bill. Them white folk called the police on him. He was down there acting erratically, like a dope fiend nigga. He was high on dope. Then, and one of when the white boy get him before they can even get him out the car and put him on the ground, guess what he go to doing? Crying? Yeah, nigga with the crying on. The white boy body camera showed it all. Now, when he, when he in the house with the black woman, victimizing the black woman with the gun in her belly, invading her home, he wasn't crying either. But when the white boy get him downtown, full of that goddamn dope, and he know he got to go to jail, he down there trying to do all the dope fiend tactics, trying not to go to jail, swallowing the dope, crying, not wanting to get out. <laughs> nigga, get your nigga. He wasn't no nigga that got the will to live, and he ain't no nigga that got the will to kill. Because he only want to kill your own nigga. White boy laying on top of you. Nigga, whatever you got to do, nigga, but you don't lay down. Them ain't my kind of niggas. Nigga, I remember I used to make the white folks hog tie me, nigga. I used to make the white folks hog tie me and drag me down the hall. And I used to holler, break it, break it. They twisted my arm, break the motherfucker. When the police slammed me on the car, I hit my head, boom. Yeah, they trying to kill me. Fuck, I'm gonna go die submissively. <laughs> Eric Garner died submissively. Subservient, docile motherfuckers. George Floyd just laid there. Subservient, docile motherfuckers. You ain't got no will to live, nigga. Let alone no will to kill your enemy. Now that motherfucker Mike Brown. Mike Brown tried to take the boy gun. Mike Brown tried to take the boy gun, man. His thumbprint was on the gun. Mike Brown was a soldier, was a warrior. He didn't just lay down. Trayvon Martin didn't just lay down, nigga. And them was babies. You see how the difference between the old niggas and the young niggas? So we don't want to hear shit from you old niggas, nigga. I'm the new minister for the young niggas, not Farrakhan. You old niggas, the old days is over with, nigga. The old days is over with, nigga. I'm the new minister for the young niggas. You saw how Mike Brown died. You saw how Trayvon Martin died. You saw how Freddie Gray died. They didn't die just laying down, nigga. The old nigga been laying down for too long, including Farrakhan, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton. All the old niggas been laying down, man. They ain't gave us nothing to follow. That's why we had to follow boys. Little boys like Raymond Washington. Little boys like Tookie Williams. We had to follow boys. Who you think started games? Boys? Teenage boys? Nigga, I'm preaching. Don't tell me to calm down. I'm in preacher mode. Nigga, I keep telling you, bitch ass nigga, I'm the minister. 
stand up and clap and say hallelujah, but don't tell pastor nothing. Let me deliver the message, nigga. Let me sweat, let me spit, let me deliver the message, nigga. I'm the preacher. Bitch ass nigga, shut y'all bitch ass up in this church house. Come in here and shut your motherfucking mouth because don't nobody want to hear you in real life. Why you think you're over here listening to me? Because you can't talk in real life and somebody will listen to you. Now, choir, y'all stand up and give them a selection. <laughs> so we can go and close out the service. Close out service. Yeah, choir gone. Someone you niggas sang. <laughs> Yeah, bitch ass nigga, you nigga got something to say. One of you nigga write a, 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 a sermon song, nigga, a gospel song, write something. Since you bitch ass nigga got something to say. So we gonna close this motherfucking sermon out for the day, nigga. And make sure Whack 100 get this. Make sure Farrakhan get this. Make sure every last one of them Muslim niggas in New York is mad at me. The Puerto Ricans, the Mexicans, whoever mad at me, nigga get in line. I done left a whole bunch of motherfuckers feeling how you motherfuckers feeling, nigga. And as long as I'm alive on earth, nigga, with ten toes, two hands, and one eye, I'm the bad.
children did what that white boy said do, and you nigga cried like a motherfucker in that federal penitentiary system, nigga, and you left your kids behind here. I ain't never left my kids out here with this big old dick, nigga, and assassinate Malcolm X. So why we gonna listen to them dumbass niggas, man? Fuck them nigga. And I doubt you nigga to come down here in Texas fucking with me, nigga. I dare you. I dare you. I'm bad down here, nigga. Yeah, bitch, that ain't. I'm bad in New York. Yeah, nigga. Fuck wrong with me. Thank y'all gonna scare me because a nigga say fuck Farrakhan and y'all mock Jesus all motherfucking time, nigga. I serve white Jesus, nigga. Yeah, I ain't know, know nothing about no nigga Jesus. All I know about is white Jesus, nigga, with the blonde hair and the pretty motherfucking blue eyes, nigga, when all the little kids around him with the lanterns. Nigga, I don't know nothing about no other motherfucking kind of genius, nigga. Yeah, you ain't living like that. You a motherfucking liar, nigga. I'm living better than the average. I'm living better than Farrakhan, nigga. Yeah, I'm living better than Farrakhan. I ain't got to beg for no money at the Million Man March, nigga. Yeah, yeah, I'm living better than Minister Farrakhan. I'm living better than most you motherfucking Muslim niggas with bow ties, nigga. You nigga can't fuck plenty bitches like me because the Muslim nation will whoop your motherfucking ass, nigga. Yeah, you nigga got to adhere to the motherfucking nation of Islam. You niggas ain't no motherfucking man. You nigga can't walk around and grab your dick like this here. None of that shit. If Minister Farrakhan catch you nigga grabbing your dick, talking shit like me, he'll whoop your ass, nigga. I can't nobody whoop my ass, nigga. Yeah, fuck you, motherfucking nigga. And then fuck you Muslim niggas overseas. All you Muslim niggas overseas that write with the lines and the scribble scrabble words and don't use letters, fuck you. You ain't done nothing to George Bush. He went over there and knocked down Saddam Hussein's statue and took you motherfuckers all well. Fuck you, Muslim over there. And you Afghanistan Muslim, you ain't still been able to beat America, nigga. I am a natural born American citizen and we hate Muslims. I am a natural born American citizen. I put my hand over my chest when the, they sing the national anthem. I think it's disgraceful for any nigga to kneel when that white boy national anthem come on and you niggas ain't killed no white boy to kneel. Yeah, kill a white boy to kneel, nigga. To the end, stand up and put your motherfucking hand over your heart and sing that motherfucking national anthem with us, nigga. You, you, you go to McDonald's, don't you? Yeah, you niggas say, man, fuck you. I ain't never in my life met a motherfucking Muslim at the family reunion. Never. I ain't never met a goddamn Muslim at the family reunion. It's all niggas. And when we get through praying at Christmas in the family reunion from mama to mama seal, nigga, everybody hollering in Jesus' name. I ain't never in my life heard a motherfucker scream, assalamu alaikum, till I landed in jail. Yeah, yeah, I ain't never heard a motherfucker say assalamu alaikum till a nigga went to jail. Yeah, nigga didn't know what the fuck that was. So all you niggas take your motherfucking ass to the penitentiary, go down there, read some books, fuck you a few niggas, or fuck you a few punks, or have you a few fights, 
smoke you some weed, drank you some hooch. When you get through tired of fighting and fucking punked, you nigga want to pick up the Quran and, and, and have Juma services every motherfucking Friday. You niggas ain't no real motherfucking Muslim till you can put a bomb on your back and one of you niggas blow your ass up. Nigga, I'm the real motherfucking Muslim. Until you niggas blow your ass up, fuck you niggas. I ain't scared of now motherfucking Muslim that's part of a Muslim group and they ain't on the white boy's terrorist list over there in Cuba at the Guantanamo Bay facility. Yeah, you niggas go to federal prison. Fuck you niggas. All you niggas went to federal prison, did what that white boy said do, and you niggas cried like a motherfucker in that federal penitentiary system, nigga. And you left your kids behind here. I ain't never left my kids out here with this big old dick, nigga. Some of you niggas, I done fuck a lot of you nigga bitches in that jailhouse, catching them in the visitation room. My brother been in prison for 30 years. You know how many bitches I done fucked in 30 years coming down there to see you ragged niggas in the penitentiary room, and I see her at the gas station. I already see the bitch looking in there. You can't leave with her. She know I'm leaving. And you can't leave, nigga. And I'm what the bitch want to see. And I'm everything a hoe on a hill at the gas station with a nigga in jail. Or the penitentiary system, nigga. Yeah, I break niggas' hearts, nigga. I keep telling you niggas I'm every hoe's pet. And I'm every nigga's regret. You nigga better take your eyes off of me, nigga. Because I'm going to bust your pussies wide open, nigga. Yeah, I know what the analytics say, nigga. Ain't nothing but niggas watching me grab my dick, nigga. I, I can show my dick and you niggas will sit there and watch me. You bitch-ass niggas won't take your motherfucking eyes off me because I am a walking addiction. I got you niggas captivated, mesmerized because I am the motherfucking real-life Django. Farrakhan ain't got shit on me. <laughs> yeah, nigga, he ain't changed no laws, nigga. And he ain't done no time for killing no white boy. When Gaddafi told Farrakhan, say, nigga, come over here and get this money. I got up some money for you niggas over there. And then white folks told Farrakhan, you better not go get that motherfucking money. Guess what he did? He had another motherfucking million man march and went to Big and Jay-Z and Beyonce now. I know the con game, nigga. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know the con game, nigga. Yeah, yeah. I ain't, I ain't begging for no money. I've been doing the work for 10 years in my community, my city, my county, and white folks know that nigga ain't go ask for no money. You can't even give him no money. I'm going to the streets to get the money, nigga. I'm the nigga can get the money out the streets, nigga. I ain't like Farrakhan that got a stage of motherfucking me event way in Washington, D.C. and hollering by, we need a thousand men. You niggas still ain't put them thousand men together, but y'all worried about what I'm saying with this big old dick down here in Texas, nigga. Our daddy come down here fucking with me. Suckers. Yeah, I talk shit, I swallow spit, I don't give a fuck about that hip-hop industry, no whack, 100, all that shit you niggas talking, y'all ain't doing no community work, nigga. I'm the community worker, nigga. I'm the community activist. You niggas ain't shit. I should have known you was And you niggas ain't this motherfucking handsome and pretty, nigga. Fresh every time, right? You go 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and you come back to the first thing, and you're like, oh, what was I doing again? And it's like this re-entry problem. It's like the re-entry problem is not a problem. It's why you will remember and master it way better. It's forcing you 
to your brain to kind of go into a different mode. So they, so the idea is that, yeah, there's a set of things, getting access to, if learning programming is, requires 10,000 hours of mastery and you're in a condition where access to computers is constrained, early access to computers will be an unalloyed advantage, right? But that doesn't mean that there aren't other situations that we can find um, where what looks like where access to something um, preferentially may look advantageous and not be advantageous at all. So my discussion of dyslexia in the book is all about conditions under which dyslexia can, not knowing how to read can be advantageous. Why? Because the strategies that you might follow to work around your reading problem can end up being more helpful to you than reading. So I, I have this long thing about the David Boys, the lawyer who basically can't read and as a result developed an incredible capacity to listen and an incredible memory. If you're a trial lawyer, believe it or not, it's more important to have an amazing memory and be an incredible listener than it is to know how to read. Right? Not if you're a litigator or a corporate lawyer, but if you're a trial lawyer, yeah. Not if you're a sorry, corporate lawyer, but if you're a trial lawyer. So we can clearly, I don't think it's, we can clearly say, look, there are desirable difficulties and there are undesirable difficulties. Um, that said, on a broader macro level, is there a possible contradiction? Yeah. But so what? Like, we're all, we're all adults. I don't know why people are so terrified of contradiction. I think contradiction is like, it's fine. I mean, I can identify hundreds of contradictions in my own life. All of you can. It's, in fact, I've, I've recently been, I've gotten so interested in this, I've, that I'm doing, I was, been, this next project I'm working on is all about the centrality of contradiction in human behavior. And that instead of, the idea has always been that as human beings what we seek to do is to locate and extinguish contradictions. I think that's nonsense. And there's a lot of very interesting social science research which suggests to the contrary, what we do is we exploit, we aggressively exploit our contradictions. They enable us to do all kinds of, not always good things, um, so I'm very interested in, I was talking about this at lunch, very interested in this notion that um, we are sometimes behave generously or proact or pro-socially towards an outsider group in order to justify turning on them in some future situation. And I, the, I have this, this the, the, the incredible example of this is Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the final solution, who spends the 1930s pretending, not pretending, convincing himself that he's a Zionist. He uh, reads books on Zionism, he goes to Jerusalem, he uh, hangs out with the rabbis of Vienna, he uh, teaches himself Hebrew, and he does this, and what that means is that when it comes time to, and he's responsible in the 30s for deporting thousands of Jews from Vienna to Palestine. What does that do? It enables him, when he 
when he turns to exterminating Jews, to be able to say to himself in his grotesque way, I don't hate Jews. I was deporting them. I was saving them. I was reading Hebrew and going to Jerusalem. And, and at one of the death camps that he sets up, he builds a library and he imports Judaica from a prominent Jewish library in Prague. And he would go and visit this place, this grotesque concentration camp, and sit in the library and read ancient Hebrew manuscripts. Right? He, at his core, this man had a massive contradiction. And he wasn't driven to resolve it. He used it to justify everything he did over the course of the war. Right? Now, that's a horrible, extreme, grotesque example. But my point is that we all have within us these contradictions. And I, I, I think that's part of what it means to be human. And just as you can use contradictions for terrible ends, like Eichmann did, they are also, at the same time, the ways in which we explore new ideas and expose ourselves to risky things and do all